You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. to the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. And welcome again to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Judy Ansel. Tonight's show is being underwritten by Blake and Ulig and International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 124. Since 1972, Blake and Ulig has prided itself on providing comprehensive legal representation to labor organizations and their affiliated benefit funds on a local, regional, and national basis. And the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 124 supports the Heartland Labor Forum. We have been wiring Kansas City since 1905, and if you're not finding your electrical contractor at IBW124.org, then you're not getting the best value for your money. And the Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, has your metropolitan newspaper turned into a zombie? Is local news coverage just a fading memory? We'll look at the corporatization of the media and the rise of nonprofits with the Kansas Reflector and the KC Defender. And public sector workers often trade lower wages for better benefits. But lately, those benefits are shrinking, but the pay is still low. Like in Independence, where International Association of Firefighters are fighting to save their health insurance. In the news, Lots of questions for KC Royals owners about a possible move to downtown. And Microsoft may get its first union. Hooray. Our feature at the end of the show is Know Your Rights. Oh, no, it isn't. It's Washington Window on Workers, which we missed on Thanksgiving. It's about what labor can expect from the incoming Republican House. And now for the news. This is the news from our side, December 15, 2022. On Tuesday, a meeting hosted by the Kansas City Royals at the Plexipod to get community input on the proposed downtown stadium was packed. According to the Kansas City Star, Royals Board Chair John Sherman said the project, which includes the stadium and an entertainment, housing, office, and hotel area, will be privately financed. The board has not yet determined a site for the new stadium, but said the project would ensure the future of the Royals. 
The so-called listening session came complete with Royals mascot Slugger and free snacks. Most of the listening, according to the star, was by attendees and the questions from the audience were pre-screened. Two groups that have been outspoken on the project are Stand Up KC, which isn't necessarily opposed, but is demanding that if this project is to move forward with the support of our tax dollars, then low-wage workers and their allies should have a seat at the table to negotiate a strong community benefits agreement to ensure that the project actually provides meaningful benefits to poor and working-class people in Kansas City. KC Tenants was a bit more negative. They said, We don't need a flashy downtown stadium. We don't need a playground for the wealthy and for tourists. As landlords raise rents across the city and as our people struggle to find decent homes, the proposed downtown stadium would usher in a new wave of gentrification, like it has in so many other cities with similar recent projects. The stadium downtown would threaten longtime community members, hitting our poor and working class neighbors and the black and brown residents of Kansas City's east side and northeast neighborhoods the hardest. This is a bad deal for the people. The worst part, they'll ask us to foot the bill. We refuse to subsidize our own displacement. KC Tenants opposes this proposal outright. The Royals said they are open to discussing community benefits agreements, but aside from looking for private financing, did not say they wouldn't ask for subsidies over and above the three-eighths cent county sales tax that we already pay and which is up for renewal in 2030. In September, Mexican auto parts workers in Piedras Negras, Coahuila, just three miles south of the border with Texas, voted to join an independent union called the Mexican Workers League Union, defeating company attempts to usher in an employer-friendly, politically connected union, the CTM, Confederation of Mexican Workers. The Independent Mexican Workers League won 186 votes, while the CTM got 101. The company is Michigan-based auto parts maker VU, manufacturing which produces interior car parts including armrests and door upholstery for Nissan, Tesla, and other car makers. In June, the League filed a petition under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Trade Agreement's Rapid Response Mechanism. The complaint alleged that the company was interfering with VU workers' rights to free association by pushing them to affiliate with the CTM. Now that the League has won the right to negotiate, the contract. It is asking unions and community organizations in the U.S. and Canada to sign on to a letter of support in their negotiations. The letter states that even though it lost, the CTM union is working with VU management to undermine the league and is slandering Julia Quinones, leader of the CFO, a border human rights organization, with the usual lies that the new union will send the jobs back to the United States. Honest to God, that's what they're saying. The National Labor Relations Board has issued labor-friendly rule changes to help unions organize. A decision yesterday in the American Steel Construction Incorporated case modified the test used to determine whether additional employees must be included when a union petitions to represent a group of workers. Often, management tries to add workers who are anti-union in a different job categories to the bargaining unit. A decision returns the board to its prior tests governing such determinations, as set forth in a 2011 case that was overruled by the Trump NLRB. In the decision, the board reaffirmed its long-standing principle that employees in the petition for a unit must be readily identifiable as a group and share a community of interest. However, where a party argues that a proposed unit meeting these criteria must include additional employees, 
The, bird re- the board reaffirmed that the burden is on the party to show that the excluded employees share an overwhelmingly community of interest to mandate their inclusion in the bargaining unit. In an article posted in Portside by Anya Bachatra, Microsoft's hands-off status on unionization efforts is facing its biggest litmus tests, and the company seems to be coming out on top. Nearly 300 quality assurance workers for Zenimax Online Studio are voting to join the Communication Workers of America. Workers in Maryland and Texas have already been signing union authorization cards, and starting December 2nd, workers have a month to vote. So far, Microsoft has remained neutral toward the company, and the company is providing clear guidance to managements on neutrality. Code CWA tweeted on December 5th, Zenimax Union in the Making, which represents workers from several studios, including the Elder Scrolls and Fallout, maker Bethesda said the same. If the vote passes, it'll be a landmark win for more than one reason. It would create the largest video game industry union in the U.S. and the first official U.S. union under Microsoft. The news tonight was read by Ariana Blockman, Judy Ansel, Tom Getman, and myself, Michael Savoy. All over the world, you had a lot of women and gorgeous girls. He had the best of everything all his life. But he didn't even know how to take care of his wife. When he cheats on others, it must be a thrill. To a crooked old man, it's the art of the deal. Stay tuned for the news, it's life. For the scandals and all of the lies. Is it me? Or does it get on your nerve? You had enough of Captain Bones first. He's got the fake news blues. Yes, he does. Fake news blues. Yes, he does. Good evening, and welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm your host, Michael Savoie. We just heard Fake News Blues by Johnny Kaz. Our show tonight is entitled Corporatization of the American News Media. I am fortunate to have two guests tonight, founder and editor-in-chief of the Kansas City Defender, Ryan Sorrell brings a public relations background to his not-for-profit digital startup. He is a recipient of the Civil and Human Rights Award and a distinguished abolitionist speaker. Sherman Smith is editor-in-chief of the Kansas Reflector. He is the recipient of the Kansas Press Association Journalist of the Year Award for two consecutive years, 2021 and 2022. Welcome, guys, to the Heartland Labor Forum. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Hey, thanks pleasure. for having us. All right. 
My sources tell me that over 50% of our nation's dailies have been bought by a handful of conglomerates and high-flying hedge funds. Uh, can either of you comment on that? Ryan, would you? Uh, sure. Uh, I don't know if I can get my headphones turned up just a little bit, but I think just to get started, uh, it's very evident, number one, that this is what's called the financialization of local news outlets. I know that from the statistics alone, it's a fact that two local news outlets every single week uh, are going out of business. Additionally, about 70% of news employment has uh, been decreased since 2007. That's 70%. And so we know that these organizations are not only being bought up, but they're also going out of business. I think that this is a, a tremendously, uh, it's an epidemic truly, and it's especially harmful for black com people, uh, communities of color, impoverished communities, poor, poor communities. It's especially harmful and even violent in many instances. Uh, I think that that's the case because, you know, there are, we need, we need a voice and an ability to advocate for our communities and uh, local news outlets are the way that we are able to do that. And so if we don't have local news outlets, then generally it's going to be state officials, it's going to be police departments and police chiefs who have the final say and the public is not able to advocate for ourselves. So mm -hmm. I think that uh, it's a very big issue. Okay, Sherman, uh, comment on the same uh, 50%. Yeah, you know, the the idea of a small local family-owned news operation is, is just vanishingly rare. And we see that, especially on the Kansas side, you know, there's no no mid or, or large-sized community that has a locally-owned newspaper, really. And you know, the the consequences are, are just as, as he was laying out there. We know what officials try to get away with when we're paying close attention and we're telling everybody what they're up to. You, you can just imagine what they would try to get away with if nobody's paying attention. Oh, absolutely. You know, we've been watching the demise of of coverage for oh 20 25 years i know for instance we we eliminated uh, the local did uh, the the labor reporter was no longer needed as early as uh well 25 years ago man we lost our labor reporter mm -hmm. so what are some of the ramifications sherman of this corporate takeover can you can you share mm -hmm. us just some ideas there yeah i mean for me it's not so much that it's a you know this kind of mythical big evil corporation that's coming in and, and doing this damage. It's it's really just the reality of the the financial climate that newspapers are are in, and and this has been just kind of like a, a ball rolling downhill, gathering steam for 25, 30 years. The traditional revenue streams have all gone away. Newspapers are trying to just kind of uh, hold their their most loyal readers hostage and, and, and gain every dollar that they can from them just to stay alive. And so it doesn't really matter if it is if it is a local uh, owner or a big conglomerate. The, the reality is there's not a viable long-term business plan for newspapers, and so we're seeing fewer and fewer journalists. Now, I do think that the, the newspapers in Kansas, we, we are blessed to have really talented journalists all over the state, including at the, the Kansas City Star, um, in my old paper, the Topeka Capital Journal, um, but there are just so so many fewer journalists that we don't have, as as you mentioned, all these beats covered. They they may not have a labor reporter anymore. There are communities that don't have anybody covering education, so nobody's going to the local school board meetings, for instance. You know that all has a a big impact on how these communities are being served. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. You know, the Wall Street Journal has called this the financialization of journalism. Uh, Ryan, is that the same as old-fashioned plundering, milking off the assets and dumbing it down? Um, I I think it's certainly very similar. I think that this is a very predictable outcome given we live in capitalism. Uh, I think that, you know, capitalism tells us and and the way that capitalism functions is that uh, it's a maximization of profit. It's a maximization of profit motives. And so that's what we're seeing with these news corporations and news organizations, especially for profit news outlets, uh, because that is going to determine what their business model is. And so for a lot of these news corporations, their number one, you know, Uh, loyalty or what they have to pay attention to is, you know, who's going to be paying for their information? How many subscribers can they get? How many people are becoming paid subscribers? Do they have uh, a paywall? And a lot of our local news outlets, even here in Kansas City, some of them do have paywalls. And uh, quite honestly, that increases uh, the discrepancy between who's able to access information and who's not. And so that's why uh, some of these news outlets that exist in Kansas City, their audiences are largely white. It's just a fact. And so I think that uh, we have to uh, be very frank about that. And that's why news outlets like nonprofit news outlets, which I think we'll get into later in the conversation. That's why I think nonprofit news outlets are incredibly important. Uh, and I, see, I think we're seeing a flourishing and a, a, a revival and an emergence of a lot of nonprofit news outlets right now. And I think that that's where a lot of the interesting uh, and important work is taking place right now. Indeed. You know, when uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the digital nonprofit is, is certainly going to be uh, the news media of the future. We just hope that it can serve uh, us as well as the old system did. What say you, Sherman, in terms of uh, is that possible uh, that the digital service can provide the same uh, sorts of checks and balances that the the printed media did. Well, certainly we we can, and and I think that we're we're demonstrating that we can. You know, for me, it's a situation where I, I had publishers at at the newspaper I worked at who would say, like, in no uncertain terms, I I am allowed to exist so long as I am profitable, right? That I mean, that's the point of a business is is making money. But I've never met a journalist at any kind of institution, you know, newspaper, broadcaster, or nonprofit anywhere who is driven by profits. Like, you know, whether it was a local-owned family, the family that owned us in in Georgia, or the kind of hedge fund that ultimately took control, I was never motivated by making money for investors in New Jersey, right? I wanted to go out and tell stories that otherwise were not going to be told. Mm -hmm. And so as a nonprofit, that, that motivation is front and center because we don't have that profit motive behind everything we're doing. And I think it also helps just from being a digital-only outlet that we also aren't kind of revolving around what are we going to put on the front page tomorrow. You know, we're still thinking about what are we going to anchor on our website at given times. But it just means that our total operation can revolve around providing the best quality journalism that we can produce. Mm-hmm. You know, I've read that the... <clears throat> Journalism Competition and Preservation Act is before Congress, and it's it's uh, apparently legislation that would uh, offer some protection uh, for the dailies and the weeklies uh, nationwide. Uh, Ryan, could you come? Are you familiar with? Uh, no, I'm not. You're familiar not. With that, yeah. Sherman, have you any idea what's going on with the 
this uh, yeah. before Congress. Mm. I mean, cool. they, they certainly say it will offer that, that kind of protection. I, I think there's some, some reasons to be skeptical of it. There's a, this great idea that I think has been floating around for maybe seven or eight years now that we have a lot of digital revenue has left newspapers and has gone toward um, Google and Facebook primarily, um, but some others uh, as well who deal in social media. And the idea is if, if they're going to make money off the content that we're producing, they should share some of that profit with us because they're taking all of our profit away and then they're, they're making money off the work that we're doing. And this law is, I think, an attempt to do that. I think there's some concerns about, you know, if you, you shove all this money into the owners of these operations, how much of that is actually going to end up in the newsroom? Um, some things like that that have to be sorted out. You know, how do you divide money? You know, say Google has to fork over a lump of cash every year. How do you determine what a small town paper in Kansas or Missouri gets versus the Washington Post or somebody else? Um, where do nonprofits fit into that picture? I mean, they're making money off of our work as well, but we're not asking for money. So there's a lot of things, I think, to be resolved with this. Um, but I think some other countries have, have tried this and have have been successful with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would uh, certainly require some fine-tuning and some real commitment by all parties involved. Um, you know, it's been said that independent, free-range journalism is a central part of our democracy. And, and I certainly feel that way. What have you to say, uh, Ryan, about the necessity for free-range journalism? Uh, I think it is uh, absolutely incredibly vital to a society to have independent, free-range journalism. I hesitate and even, you know, might even push back against calling the United States a democracy, frankly. Uh, I think, and, you know, Angela Davis has called it a prison nation given our you know, dramatic issue and, and pandemic of mass incarceration of black people, poor people, uh, people of color. And so I'm, I'm very hesitant to call the United States a, a democracy, frankly. And so I think it is, you know, again, very important for us to have avenues to uh, for people to advocate for our communities. I think that's always very important. Um, and I think that with, you know, social media, uh, especially, that's something that we, our news organization, has taken advantage uh, advantage of a lot, and it has given us uh, unprecedented capabilities to be able to uh, reach people and to get new perspectives and radical perspectives uh, out in, uh, out to the communities and to people that previously we haven't been able to. Indeed. You know, uh, it's been said that America's lost 25% of its daily since 2005. And, of course, this creates a real void in, in uh, our news coverage. And essentially we've been seeing this, uh, as the title song went, fake news blues that's overcoming America. Sherman, can you comment on uh, what's been the, the atmosphere that's been created by the lack of or the destruction of uh, so many of our news sources? Well, technology is, is great in that it allows us to reach a, a very large audience, more people than you know newspaper ever could have 35 years ago. But it also means that all of the bad actors out there, the, the people who have something to gain by lying to you, can also reach a, a wide audience. And, you know, that means we're, we're competing for attention at a, on a constant, constant basis. 
For me, it's about trying to demonstrate that we're we're giving you something that is relative to your life, something that some sort of information that is going to have an impact that that you want to hang on to, that you you want to see or read on a particular day, and we let the the strength of that information of of our reporting and storytelling set us apart from fake news. Mm-hmm. Um, when I've gotten into these conversations with people, sometimes for like you know I don't know if you know you're a credible journalist or not. I, you know people who don't want to talk to you. One of the things I try to emphasize is the thing that sets us apart is we're we're telling stories about real people and real things that are happening. You know the people in our stories have names; they're not anonymous sources. Um, we're we're telling you this person is doing this in their life, and this is the impact of what is happening to them. And I think that that helps us kind of distinguish ourselves from the sea of misinformation that's out mm-hmm. there. Absolutely, Ryan. You have a quick comment on this uh, fake news uh, outlets? Make I, it brief because we want to get you guys on to talk about your startups. Definitely, definitely. Well, just very quickly, I think. Uh, I know that the American Press Institute just put out a very interesting report that the Kansas City Defender contributed to, and it was skeptical about this word fake news, about the word disinformation, because a lot of times we have state-sanctioned disinformation, uh, specifically from organizations like the Kansas City Police Department, who will put out information in their official police reports that's blatantly false, and a lot of so-alleged uh, you know news news organizations will print those official police reports uh, unquestioningly and parrot them as facts even though they're not and so oftentimes i think that we pigeonhole what the idea of fake news is or disinformation is when in reality for black people specifically uh, a lot of official news sources have been uh, disseminating fake news and and disinformation since the beginning of the united states Mm -hmm. as we wind down guys i i um we're gonna fast forward it a little bit here we want to talk about the resistance that uh, uh, we've seen in, in organizations like Rebuild News and uh, the American Journalism Project. Uh, Sherman, are you familiar with either of those? I, no, I'm not. You're not. Ryan, do you have any any knowledge of Rebuild News and the uh, American Journalism Project, which is actually uh, uh, owned by a coalition of 3,000 locally owned nonprofit newsrooms and, and encouraging more nonprofits. Uh, I am a little bit familiar with uh, especially the American Journalism Project. I know that Rebuilding Local News, as you mentioned, is a coalition uh, of especially news organizations like the Institute for Nonprofit News, uh, which we're a part of, as well as local online independent news publishers, which we're also a part of. I think that these types of organizations, at least for us, have been incredibly, uh, absolutely vital to our sustainability and, and ability to, uh, you know, grow and exist. Indeed. Okay, doke, we're down to about our last four minutes. Uh, Sherman, would you like to tell our listening audience uh, about your startup, your primary focus, how old you are, and and uh, where yeah. you're at? Yeah, I, I launched the Kansas Reflector in July of 2020, uh, we are an affiliate of States Newsroom, which is based out of North Carolina. They're a nonprofit that is trying to put journalists back into state houses where the ranks have been depleted. And so I think we were the 15th or 16th to launch. They're up to 30 states now. Um, we are based out of Topeka. Our, our primary focus is politics and state government reporting, but we kind of stretch that definition to really be anything that's going to have an impact on the lives of Kansans anywhere in the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a staff of, you know, myself and uh, 
to reporters who are based out of the Topeka office. Um, we, we generate news stories. Uh, we also have a reporter based out of Kansas City that, that writes um, primarily about environment, and we share that, that reporter with the Missouri affiliate, the Missouri Independent. And then we also have an opinion editor who uh, writes columns but also curates columns from uh, individuals all over the, the state. We, we're trying to elevate these voices that have been typically left out of the public policy debates. Mm-hmm. And so collectively, you know, we try to publish three or four things a day. We've got um, through State's Newsroom and D.C. Bureau that also contributes some stories. And we publish okay. online through our website at CanvasReflector.com. We're on some social media channels getting ready to launch a TikTok channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also allow all the other news media to republish our stories for free. Okay, very um, good. You know, Sherman, let's yeah. kick it over to Ryan so he can tell us about his upstart. Uh, Absolutely. Well, we are a black nonprofit digital news startup. We were founded in July of 2021. Uh, Just in our, you know, year and a half of existence, we have grown our social media audience to over 50,000 people. We've reached well over 40 million uh, people across all of our social media platforms. We're very uh, incredibly active on social media, and that's actually where a vast majority of our following exists, especially on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Our primary audience is actually Gen Z. Uh, Over 50% of our audience is between the ages of 13 years old and 30 years old. So very, very young people. And we've also broken over 10 national news stories since we launched last year. Uh, One of those uh, was an international story, which took place a few months ago on missing black women here in Kansas City. We broke the story. And a lot of, uh, first the Kansas City Police Department said that it was false. And then a lot of other news outlets, both locally and nationally said it was false. And it came out that later on uh, verified that what we had published was in fact very true. And I think that's uh, just uh, indicative of the kind of reporting that our news organization has done. Mm -hmm. Uh, We try to speak for the people that have been silenced, especially black people. And that's uh, just what that's what drives us is being a platform for the black community. Right. Ryan, we're going to have to cut it there. I want to thank both of you for coming on. Sherman, uh, uh, appreciate your input. And Ryan, we certainly appreciate yours as well. And next time we'll plan a little bit more time to talk about digital news media. Thank hey, you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Bye. Catch the local showcase every Thursday night on KKFI, where we highlight local musicians, poets, artists, and events from the Kansas City and surrounding areas. Curated and brought to you by a different KKFI host from week to week. That's the local showcase every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. right here on 90.1 FM KKFI. KKFI is listening, and your feedback helps to inform our decisions on current and future programming. It's important for your voice to be heard, so let us know what you think about our programming by going online and filling out the KKFI listener survey at kkfi.org survey.
So I took my life in my own hands But every option I found felt like some kind of trap That's when I discovered Lysol and bubble wrap Say hello to my new health insurance So cheap that it's practically free Say hello to my new health insurance My doctor is WebMD Say hello to my new health insurance cool little trick you don't need real health insurance if you never get sick Duh. it doesn't matter if I have a pre-existing condition hello I'm Tom Gevkin president of CWA local 6360 and I will be co-hosting this segment with Judy Morgan uh, president emeritus of American Federation of Teachers local 691 and termed out state representative. People who decide to make a career in the public sector do not do this to become rich. They are firefighters, policemen, street maintenance workers, 911 dispatchers, and many other jobs that make our lives better. These dedicated city employees make sure our water is clean and safe to drink. The street lights come on when they're supposed to. We count on them to assist us on our worst day. These dedicated employees could make more in the private sector, but choose a life of service instead. What the public sector does offer is a good benefit package. On tonight's show, we're happy to have two members of the International Association of Firefighters, Local 781. Chris Fairbank, president of Local 781, representing firefighters in Independence, Missouri, and Michael V, the Secretary Treasurer of 781. Michael and Chris, welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum this evening. Good Thank to you. see you here. Thank you. So we know, like Tom said, that a benefit package, a health benefit package, goes a long way with public employees. And it's been that way for a long time. It includes all public employees, including teachers, of which I was a member of the teachers union for many years. And this attack on health benefits seems to be a relatively recent occurrence with uh, the, your membership and the management that represents uh, independence. So would you discuss how this came about in independence, Michael? Uh, so this came about, it started back about 2015 uh, when we finished up our last contract or set two contracts ago. And we were fortunate enough that we hold the 80-20 language in our contract, which protects the entire city as far as premiums go. So the employees are only paying a maximum of 20%. And then in 2019, the city manager came to us. Uh, one of the other benefits that we offer through the city is retirement insurance. So uh, if you work for the city for at least 20 years, then you're offered retirement insurance at the same rate as active employees until you're, you reach Medicare eligible. And then the city's insurance becomes secondary to Medicare. Well, the city manager and city administration at the time saw the amount of money that was going out because we were facing a huge increase in our premiums at that time that they came back and started the negotiations of attacking our benefits. And it really started with them taking away retiree insurance from July 1, 2019 forward for any of our new hires. And so that's kind of where the attack started. And it's just progressively gotten worse and worse every year since then. So when they, uh, were they trying to say that the retirees were costing a lot of money and that's why they were wanting to go after them or what was the reasoning? Yeah, they, uh, they saw, they wanted to have a sunset on that because they knew eventually at some point that it was going to get to the point where they couldn't afford it. 
The other thing that they didn't really take that they were that their argument was is that it did. It was costing the city so much money for retiree insurance when they had other options out there available. Well, what they failed to realize is, is that those post 65 retirees, when they were Medicare eligible, they were using that insurance as a supplemental insurance. So they were still contributing the same amount of money as what an active employee or a pre 65 retiree was. They were kind of helping supplement the plan and kind of keep our rates down while they were still enjoying the benefit of our insurance, picking up the costs that Medicare didn't cover. Well, when they did that, that's when it put our insurance plan into a tailspin. And that's, we've been on a downward spiral ever since. So basically Medicare covered the post 65 folks first, and then the independence health plan came in and picked up whatever Medicare did not cover. Yep. So Medicare right now will cover 80% of all your medical expenses. And then your supplemental insurance, your secondary insurance will pick up the remaining 20%. And that's what our plan was picking up was that 20%. Typically in a pre and a post 65 Medicare eligible retiree, the biggest payout from a supplemental insurance plan is going to be your pharmaceuticals and your, your prescriptions at that point. Medicare picked, does a really good job of picking up the remaining actual medical cost. This is not just a Independence Missouri problem. This is a problem nationwide, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, we're kind of fighting a war on two fronts in a sense of, of bringing in quality personnel to work. Um, I mean, you can see it across, you know, the police department, the fire department, um, any of those labor type jobs. We're, we're having a harder time finding employees that will come in and, and apply. Um, just dealing on the firefighter level and speaking with the Missouri State Council of Firefighters, uh, when we meet with our counterparts at other agencies, finding qualified people to come be a firefighters is, is getting harder and harder to do. Um, on top of that, we're almost getting competitive with one another with hiring packages and incentives that other agencies are offering. We're starting to pull from other, other departments. Independence used to be kind of a driving force and, and we'd be able to recruit from other departments. Really our, our department is, has many individuals that got their career started, whether it be Liberty, Sedalia, Lenexo, Latha, other neighboring departments where they've decided to apply and come work for us, where we can't compete on what those packages are now, we're going to start seeing employees go elsewhere. Um, just at the recent Missouri State Council President's meeting, we had a discussion on it. And really, you're also dealing with a unique population in the millennials where that loyalty, when somebody applies for a job or starts a job, them up and leaving two, three years after they've been there and starting all over with something new is, is part of this generation's identity. So it's, it's where, when people, you know, I say for myself or, or I, I, I don't want to speak for V, but I imagine, you know, when, when we joined this department or we joined the fire department, that was, that was our career. That's where we were going to be, but you're just dealing with a different generational philosophy when it comes to employment and work. And they say that the uh, young people entering the workforce today will have five different career jobs over their lifespan of work. Uh, Correct. That is going to cause problems across the board for every, every company, every city. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then on top of that, and going back to the original issue of, of benefits, you know, when I came to work at independence, we had really strong benefit package. Now I can argue that the insurance that's offered to me through the city of independence currently now is better than what I can get through my wife's insurance, which is she works for an insurance company, but those days are numbered. I mean, with our contract language that we've 
we've contended with for years on our 80-20 language. That's a hot topic that's that's addressed every single time we sit down at the table to talk negotiations. That's number one on the list that we have to defend. We have to start getting creative and, and the city has to start understanding that unless we incentivize people coming here to work, we're going we're gonna to lose out on those good workers, those good employees um, to going to neighboring cities and jurisdictions. And kind of to piggyback off what Chris said a little bit, subsequently, you know, like he said, we're, we're fighting for this 80-20 language. It's the first thing on the city's list when they come for negotiations. So when we're looking at this and we're trying to make a decision on what's best for our members and what's going to be the best in our contract, you know, we look at the long-term effects of benefits, but then we're also having to sacrifice pay to make sure that we protect that language so that we're not eating up any pay increases in healthcare costs. And so it, it's a tricky road to go down. Uh, you and your bargaining have to thread that needle. It gets harder and harder every bargaining time. Absolutely. That's not saying we, you know, we, we make little bits of progress in our last negotiations, sick leave use and, and the buyout, you know, our term, we have a buyout on, on our sick leave hours with the city of independence. Um, and that's been kind of a t- contested issue for a number of years. It was one on our last negotiations, but what came out to be necessarily a win for our, for our younger guys um, who won't be able to, based on the state well changes, once they leave the department, carry on with their health insurance. However, uh, the city agreed to, and we installed a 401A plan that incentivizes those individuals um, and invest into that account yearly where potentially you have a, a younger uh, firefighter that comes on at the age of 20, if he sticks around his whole career until 55, potentially he's walking with, depending on how the market does on our calculations, anywhere from around $80,000 through that 401a plan. So that's a win as far as that kind of incentive, but we have to be more creative and, and do a lot more uh, to compete with our other agencies around us that are are now doing um, hiring incentives as far as upfront cash bonuses and, and things of that nature. So for either one of you guys, how are some municipalities able to offer these incentives and, and attract workers while other municipalities are unable to do that? What, what would you guys say that the reason for that is, or do you have a thoughts on that? Michael, you want to go? Well, I think some of it has to do with, past practices and the way the city's done as far as budgeting and protecting themselves. Unfortunately, in the city that we work in, that's not been the case always. So it, it makes it very difficult to incentivize or offer a, a recruitment package or something along those lines, or even a retention bonus. I know a lot of what you're seeing currently as far as the retention bonuses and recruitment bonuses, that's all coming from the federal government through the ARP fund. Um, there were stipulations on that, that that had to be spent, I believe, by July 1 of 2023 of whatever was dispersed through the counties and then out to the municipalities. So I think they found ways to do that to actually attract younger members to hire on. The problem is, is that that money's up front. It's not long term. We, you know, when we look at negotiating a contract and looking for our best interest and the best bang for our buck, I want something that lasts long term that we can have compounding interest on over the next 30 years for our members and really be able to provide something for them when they get to that retirement age. I hand a 20-year-old a $10,000 check right now for coming to work for us. If that was given to one of us and we invested it and took care of it, what, what would that money be in 20, 25 years when we're able to retire? So we, we ha- it's, it's, a, 
it's a tricky game to balance. We're talking with members of International Association of Firefighters, Local 781, Chris Fairbank, the president, and Michael V, the secretary treasurer. This is not just a fire department issue. It's uh, going on everywhere in every city, and it's affecting all the city jobs. Can you talk about the other city departments and what they are experiencing with this issue? I think the one that's that's most similar to our situation is the police department, namely IPD. And that again, that's that's not a an independence problem or a necessarily a Kansas City or a Missouri problem. That's a, that's a nationwide problem. Just in general, when you're getting into the labor workforce, more particularly firefighters and and police officers, you're just not finding individuals that want to get into that line of work. I know that when Mike and I applied, you know, I applied at a number of departments and some of those departments might have three, 400 applicants for the number of job openings they had. Right now, we're lucky to get 25, 30. And so out of those, and when you do, when you get down to interview, you, you maybe have 15 that actually qualify. And then when you're trying to fill 10 spots, you know, it's, do you take them or, or do you pass knowing that they're going to go somewhere else? So it, it's a, it's more of a cutthroat game at this point of making sure that you get the talent that you need to fill your ranks and make sure that you, you're established good workforce. But at the same time, then you're also looking at, we don't want to just take any guy or any girl, you know, we want to make sure we're getting the best firefighter we can get. We want to make sure we're getting people that are motivated that want to come in and do the job. Um, but we're just dealing with a different generation. And part of that's on us. We got to figure out how to work with that generation that's coming in. It's a different work ethic. It's a different philosophical style in which, in which they apply themselves and tapping into that energy and, and, and getting them up to do the job, but it's, it's getting harder and harder. Every time we, we open up a, a, you know, more particularly this past year, we brought on Mike, what are we up to 30, about 30 new firefighters? 30 or 35, we've got to, when we look down, we look at our workforce in the fire department right now, um, 20% of our department is within that first 18 months of new hire. And we have somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20 or 25% of our members are on some form of new hire probation or new promotional probation. So when we got hired on 10, 15 years ago, you know, we had a lot of veterans on the department that were pushing them 30, 35 years. And now when we look at it, you know, Chris and I at 10 and or 13 and 15 years now, we're the old guys. We're the veterans on the department. So we have a lot of that younger workforce and, and, and kind of piggyback off what Chris said. We have to learn how to work with that generation and this newer, newer generation that's coming on. And that has its own set of challenges and it's nothing against any of them. It's just, it's just a different mindset that we have to, to look at. And with that becomes looking at different ways to negotiate for benefits, negotiate for pay, what really affects them. And I've heard a lot of our newer members talk about the benefit packages that, you know, protecting their families and their future families and their kids that are to come, or even their newborns that are at home, you know, they look forward to that. They look out for that they're looking at that for retirement. And that's, we're starting to hear a lot of grumblings about that. And it's not bad. They're concerned because they don't have the same privileges that we do as far as being protected with retirement insurance. So that presents a set of challenges for Chris and I and the rest of our executive team to really figure out how we can benefit both groups and continue to show a unified front and move forward. And we're fortunate that, you know, for the most part, we have a good relationship with management within the fire department. 
And a part of that onboarding process of our new hires, we'll do union orientation where we, we spend, you know, a couple hours at, in, within their first 20 days of employment before they're released in the field to actually start training, where we kind of educate them on what we are, what we do, what our purpose is, not only as, as firefighters, but in just in the relations of labor, where unions got us to where we are now, you know, as far as negotiating our contract and our benefits and their rights as, as an employee with the city and the fire department. So teaching them, because a lot of these individuals are coming in or a lot of these young kids, they didn't run, they, you know, they didn't grow up in a labor household. Some of them did, but a lot of them didn't. And educating them on that process and how it works and, and getting them familiar with it and what we do and engaging them. That's our biggest thing is learn to get engage with those individuals because they're the ones that are going to be sitting in Mike's, Mike and I seat before they know it. They didn't learn it in the schools. Yep, uh, yep. Shifting gears just a little bit. You guys as firefighters get paid by the citizens of the city through their taxes. All of the things we've been talking about, does it have an effect on the citizens that, that live in independence? Uh, the employees are dedicated to make sure the streets are safe and the water is clean and, and all of that. And the firefighters deliver the services they need. But has this, would you discuss how it's become an issue with the citizens? Yeah, it's, you know, I can start by saying that, you know, every one of our sworn members that works for our fire department took an oath to protect the citizens of Independence. And, and that's for any fire department across the, the nation, really. Our guys are always going to show up and do their job. They're going to give you 110% all the time, every time. And they're going to make sure that the job gets done. Whether that's a medical call or a car wreck or a structure fire, anything, we're going to go above and beyond to protect our citizens. Where you really see that affected is it's in the morale of our guys and members. We have this sense of service. We want to be out and serve the public. We want to be there for our citizens. We want to protect them. But if we're not supplemented with our benefits and our packages on the back end of the deal, our guys they're not going to get, they're not going to go that extra, extra step that we need them to, to provide to the citizens. They're always going to protect them, but you'll start to see it in the morale. You'll see it around the stations. You'll see it in their attitudes. It's These a matter of the employee being valued. Absolutely. Absolutely. Something I argued uh, just recently, just with talking to our city manager, you know, is when we want to leave, when we leave here, when, when, when we, we, we've served the city doing what we do to the best of what we do, all our members want to do is be able to retire with dignity and respect, have a respectable retirement and know that the, the time that and the sacrifices that they made in their own body and then to their families, that, that it was warranted, that it was, that it was worth it. And that's all we ask, you know, and that's treat us with dignity and respect all the way through retirement. Municipal employees are dedicated, People spend a whole career of service and they want to be rewarded in a fair way. Absolutely. Uh, mm -hmm. All right. Well, we've come to the end of our time. Thank you guys very much for coming on. Michael Veet and Chris Fairbank, members of the International Association of Firefighters, Local 781. Thank you very much. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. When the
We're talking to Mark Grunberg, and it's time for Washington Window on Workers. And you had a really interesting article this week, Mark, about what's upcoming for Congress as far as labor law changes. Maybe. So first, give me the bad news about the House, and then we'll get to the good news about the Senate. First off, what's the bad news? Okay, the bad news actually is the Republican agenda for workers. The Republicans will take over the Education and Labor Committee. First thing they'll do is re-rename it Education and the Workforce Committee. They hate the word labor. That should tell you something. Then they'll get started on a whole passel of things, investigations, oversight. For them, investigations will be more like badgering than anything else. And particularly legislation, bad legislation. Take the PRO Act and flip it. The anti-pro act. That's their that's going to be their big deal. And so what's the anti-pro act got in it? It's got, well, it'll have a ban on card check, it'll slow down union elections, it'll throw up more roadblocks, it'll stop it'll leave workers going from pillar to post if they if they're in a fran if they're in a franchise and they don't know who's breaking the labor law, whether it's the big bosses in the headquarters or their or their boss on the floor. It's uh, they're going they'll have to uh, go through a whole bunch of hoops for uh, just union certification. Oh, and yes, recertification. Iowa has had this brainstorm where if a union fell below 50% of the people in the workplace, it had to get recertified every year. Wow. So, Mark, is it expected that the Republicans will have enough discipline over their members that every one of them will vote for such a thing? Because the fact is they have a very slim majority in the House. Yeah. They'll have to pass the House. There are so few moderate Republicans left in the House that you've got to cross your fingers. Okay. Um, Do you think any Democrats will defect and vote with them? I can think of one, Henry Cuellar of Texas. Oh, yeah. We remember him. Then there's the Senate. And the Senate, of course, has a slim Democrat majority. Uh, who's going to take over the Senate Labor Committee? Well, that's the fun part of this. The current chair, Patty Murray, is going to become chair of the full House Appro Senate Appropriations Committee. That means she'll have to give up the, the chair of the Senate Labor Committee. And the new chair, the next in line, is Bernie Sanders. And well, he's working, kind of pro-labor, isn't he? Uh, yeah, let's put it that way. You're being polite. He's, he's only the most pro-work uh, person up, up in Capitol Hill. On either side, Senate labor will become a graveyard. I I think we can safely say for all these brainstorms. Yeah, you you said in your article that that Bernie will become the boss of the cemetery. Yeah, for exactly. these bad bills. This is sort of the flip side of what's been happening in these last two years, where the House has been passing progressive legislation, including the Pro Act, and then McConnell has been burying it. But of course, it's a new Congress, and so they would have to start from scratch again, for Correct. instance, to pass, try to pass the PRO Act. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like, you know, it's just going to be paralysis. Correct. So the solution to paralysis and even the, the anti-worker law firm that exposed this, not to mention the Transportation Trade Department, realizes the way to go now is regulation. Do what, do what you can do through the agencies since Congress is going to be a complete gridlock. Okay, let's do that next month because we're out of time. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe you can put together a list of regulations that will be help, helpful to working people and to unionized working people for December. Okay? Okay. Thanks, thanks a lot, Mark. Have a good Have Thanksgiving. Have a great Thanksgiving. Yeah, thank you. Bye. 
And now for the Heartland Labor Forum calendar, it's very short. Everything shuts down for Christmas, and uh, so all we have is the uh, UU Forum on Sunday. Craig Volland is going to be speaking about how a flaw in air pollution regulation endangers Americans. That's at 9.30 a.m. Sunday morning, either in person or online at uh, Universe, Unitarian Universalist Church, 4501 Walnut in Kansas City, Conover Hall, or online, you can go to allsoulskc.org to get a link. And then in January, the Wyandotte County Legislative Delegation is having a town hall meeting Thursday, January 5th at 6 p.m. I guess they don't know the Heartland Labor Forum is on then. It's going to be at West Wyandotte Library, 1737 North, 82nd Street in KCK. And there are several job positions open. Uh, for organizers, Starbucks Workers United has an organizer position open for Kansas City. The job is with Chicago and Midwest Regional Joint Board of Workers United. For more information, go to unionjobs.com and look for Workers United. The Missouri Workers Center is hiring an Amazon worker organizer, and Stand Up KC is looking for an organizer, as in, um, and so is the Kansas City Federation of Teachers. Again, you can go to unionjobs.com. Uh, tune in next week, the Heartland Labor Forum. Uh, we're gonna be talking to Justin Akers Chacon about a book called The Border Crossed Us. And it's all about how having a closed border actually hurt, hurts workers. And the rest of the show will be to be announced. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Stephen Hill, and stay tuned for the Thursday night special at Stand Up, produced by the Racial Justice Initiative. listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss. And you can talk back to us, too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to heartlandlaborforumkkfi at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM, KKFI. We still got our because we are the working class and that's the place to be. Is that it?